0: Morning. We're going to close out our sermon series on the trial of Jesus today. For much of ancient history, uh, it was understood or it was believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And not only was it the center of the universe, but all of the planets that went around the earth worked in a very concentric pattern, that there are these perfect circles, uh, that all the planets just went around the earth. And and for a very long time, this is just what was accepted and, and that information was passed on from generation to generation. And it really wasn't probably till about the Renaissance where, where man really wanted to understand the world in which they live and so man did a, a deep dive uh, into the world around them by exploring in, in mathematics and astrology and, and studying the stars with astronomy and beginning to explore everything that was out there. And so along came uh, Nicholas Copernicus. He had studied the stars and the planets, and, and he noticed a problem with this theory that the earth was the center of the universe. He, he looked at it and he said, It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because if that's the case why does it seem that throughout the year and and throughout time that these different planets they they seem to move in very erratic ways that that at one point it was here and then it jumped a lot and then at some points it it almost seemed that the planets actually moved backwards And, and Copernicus postulated and thought about this and said, you know, this would actually make more sense if the sun was the center of the universe. And so he he began to study that and put that forward. And Copernicus actually uh, correctly ordered the actual planets where they were from the sun. And he even uh, believed that the earth rotated on a tilt on its axis. He said, this just seems to make so much more sense this way. So he writes a book in 1530 called The Revolutions in the Heavenly Spheres. And he wasn't 100% convinced, so he actually didn't publish it. It actually didn't get published until a year after his death. Now, we have to understand that this was a theory that conflicted greatly With the Catholic Church and the Pope, Uh, because for a long time, the church continued to believe that old idea that the earth was the center. And they thought, you know, if this is wrong, what else have we been wrong about? And so for a long time, the church stood against this idea and actually outlawed Copernicus's book in 1616. Well, along comes another scientific uh, theorist, another uh, person of the stars. Galileo comes along and he picks up Copernicus's idea and and he had developed a telescope that had greatly magnified its ability to see. And so he utilized this telescope to continue to observe the stars and the planets and the heavenly spheres. Uh, He was able to identify the, the, the surface of the Earth's moon the various moons of Jupiter, the rings of Saturn, he began to articulate what that actually was, the phases of Venus, uh, and even this idea of sunspots, Galileo was able to figure out. And he agreed with Copernicus. But in 1616, he gets brought before the court, and the church basically says, Galileo, you're wrong. What you are speaking is erroneous and it's heretical ideas. And we are going to ask that you do not continue to put this idea any further. And so in 1632, Galileo writes a book, The Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. It's a fictitious argument between two individuals or and people, those that supported the geocentric theory that the earth was the center and those that supported the heliocentric theory that the, the sun was the center. And throughout the book, those individuals that supported the geocentric theory were basically portrayed as fools, that, that they were unwise to continue to do this. And any argument they put forward was constantly fought against. And so in the end, those of the heliocentric theory were victorious and they were the champions of the true cause of science here. Well, of course, in this, the church was being portrayed as the geocentric theory as well. And the church didn't take kindly to this. So yet again, they brought they brought Galileo to trial uh, and they, they 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 put him on there at the age of 70, and they said, "Listen, we want you to recount these beliefs and these theories. We want you to take back what you have said, Galileo, because again, what you are speaking is heresy." And pretty much under the threat of torture, Galileo says, "Fine." I'll give in. I'm 70 years old. I just want to move on from this. And they put him under house arrest for the rest of his life. And he continued to basically say to the church, can I not be under house arrest anymore? Can I go out there? And the church said, no, Galileo. We fear what you might do. We're going to continue to hold you here. And so Galileo ends up dying, not to mention his work as well was also banned. Well, guilty of heresy. It wasn't until 1822 that Galileo's book was taken off the banned list of books. And it wasn't until 1992 that the church officially declared Galileo innocent for what he did. So think about that. For 350 years, Galileo was accused of heresy, was found guilty of this. Though he did nothing wrong with all of the scientific evidence that we had, it took until 1992 for the church to turn around and say, we're sorry we made a mistake. And this is not uncommon at times that our justice system doesn't get something right. Or or the justice system looks and says, we believe that this is the best form of punishment. Because the point of the justice system is is to say what is right and what is wrong and to administer that justice appropriately. So when things go wrong, it's frustrating, isn't it? it? It can be mind boggling to us. I don't get how with all of the facts and the evidence, it took this long To exonerate him and say that we were sorry. And at times you're just thinking somehow, somewhere, somebody has to make this injustice right. Well, again, we've been discussing the trial of Jesus. And and what have we found that, again, this was a a sham of a trial. Jesus goes through it and he endures the, the humiliations, the beatings, the suffering. And last week, as we celebrated Easter together... We talked about the truth that Jesus spoke in that trial. We talk about this this truth that, that Jesus said he was who he was. But again, it didn't matter. And in the end, he was hung on a cross to be crucified, Roman execution style. And so today we're going to finish this looking at the trial here and saying... What is it that finally sets Jesus free? What is it that exonerates or validates those claims that Jesus had? So if you have your Bibles, you guys can open up to Luke chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 50 there. Again, we've been trying to use each of the different scriptures to take a a different look at uh, this trial from each different lens of the gospel. And and Luke gives us a a significant amount of what happens after the trial and after the crucifixion. So verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one in which they had not yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The, The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to that commandment. He is not here. He is risen. Remember how we told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words again. So in the morning, the, the women go down, and they're preparing Jesus' body to, to put spices on there and, and perfumes. And they get there, and the tomb's rolled away. And the angels appear, and they're like, What are you doing here? Well, why, why are you looking for Jesus? And women are like, what do you mean? Why, why wouldn't we be here? And they're like, ladies, why do you look for the living among the dead? Right? Dead people are in tombs, not people who are alive. Jesus has risen. He's gone away. You're looking in the wrong spot. And I, I have to imagine the women have to, again, It said they were, they were, there was a, a sense of fright. And, and the women have to be confused and they're thinking, wait, we're talking to angels and they're telling us that Jesus isn't here. W- what do you mean he's not here? We saw him die. We saw him get laid in the tomb. We, we saw the stone. We saw everything happen. This is where Jesus was when we left. Why would he not be here? And they go, but remember what he said. Remember that he told you this. He told you this was going to happen. He told you that he was going to be buried and three days later he was going to rise again. Don't you remember? And the ladies go, oh, that's right. We forgot about that. And to be fair, that these women are not the only one that struggled with this idea. Jesus's own disciples struggled with this concept as he began to speak about this idea. Because you remember back in Matthew chapter 16, Peter had just made this profession of who Christ was. And it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So as Jesus is coming near his crucifixion, he starts to lay the groundwork. He starts to lay these seeds. And he says, guys, I'm just giving you a heads up of what's going to happen. I'm going to stand on trial and I'm going to stand before the leaders and they're going to crucify me. But don't worry. It's going to be all right. Because three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And of course, all of his disciples are just as perplexed as these women were. What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus you you, you got to go and die? That, that's not the king that we've come to serve. That's not the king that we understand, Jesus. And you're going to raise from the dead? What are you talking about, Jesus? So why is this so significant to us? Why does this matter so much about what Jesus had said and what he had done? Well, if we go back a little bit further... When when Jesus is speaking in Matthew 12, he's speaking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders and and his disciples are picking up heads of grain on the Sabbath. And then Jesus goes and heals a man on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are like, what are you doing, Jesus? This is the Sabbath. We don't do this kind of stuff. What power, what authority do you have to do what you have just done? And so Jesus accuses them of basically uh, being of the devil. And he says, listen, you guys just don't get it. You don't you don't understand. And he calls them a brood of vipers. And he says, listen, your fruit is going to be recognized. Your evil is going to be recognized by the things that you do. And they're like, all right, Jesus. All right. You're talking a big game here. You're, you're talking about all these kind of things and this authority. You prove it to us, Jesus. You show us what miracle can you do? What are you going to do right now to prove who you are? And so there in Matthew 12, this is how Jesus responds. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Look, the only sign I'm gonna give you is the sign here of Jonah. For three days and three nights, I'm gonna be there in that that ground, and then I'm gonna come back. And when I do, I will solidify this message, this message of judgment that I bring upon you. This message of repentance and forgiveness and redemption, all of that is gonna come true. And again, of course, the fallacies are just like, I don't, this doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Well, this wasn't the only time that Jesus had this kind of interaction. We see something similar in John chapter two. Jesus goes to the temple and what does he go when he sees in the temple? He, he sees that the money changers are there and, and they're, they're wheeling and dealing. And Jesus is like, How dare you? How dare you turn the house of my father into a place of robbers and thieves and about business? This is a place of worship. And he begins to turn over the money tables and he, he begins to cast out the money changers. And nobody was upset about this, but Jesus was. And again, they're wondering wait a minute, Jesus. What gives you the right to do this? So in John chapter two, what do they do? They respond, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it again in three days? What are you talking about, Jesus? You're going you're to destroy this temple. And in three days, you're going to build this thing. You're going to take every stone apart and stone by stone, you're going to put this temple back. It took us 46 years, Jesus. You are out of your mind. So we have these two instances where Jesus, again, is claiming something that people are like, we want proof Jesus, you call yourself the Son of God. You call yourself the Son of Man. You, you, you proclaim to be God. You proclaim to be the great I Am. Jesus, we are still waiting for you to show us this. So Jesus needs to do something to validate this claim, right, when he's on trial. Well, when Jesus goes on trial, you know he, he, doesn't, he doesn't go to the trial with all sorts of facts and evidence laid out. He didn't go to the trial with his lawyers and go, all right, guys, we've got a pretty good case here. This is a stone cold, hard lock, right? He didn't show up and say, listen, disciples, I need you here because you guys are gonna be my witnesses. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, can you all come and be part of this process? Because I need you to stand up there and I need you to give proof of who I am. Because after you guys give testimony and witness and my lawyer speaks, all of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and when I stand before Pilate, they're going to go, Jesus, that is such a great argument. You are right. You know what? This man is innocent. He's, he's not guilty. Let's let him go free, and we're all going to celebrate together the release of Jesus. Jesus is like, that. that's not how this is going to go down, guys. See, what I'm going to do is, again, I'm going to endure this corrupt and legal shenanigans. I'm going to endure it. I'm going to sit through it. I'm going to let them badmouth me. And I'm going to let them beat me. I'm going to let them hit me and mock me and smack me in the face. And then I'm going to let them crucify me to a cross and put nails through my hands and my feet. And they're going to pierce my side. I'm going to let them do that. But through that whole trial, I'm going to continue to hold firm to that truth, which I spoke about last week, that Jesus said, I am God and I am here to forgive your sins and to save you from eternal condemnation. That is what I'm going to do. And so the proof that people are looking for, he's already told them what was going to happen. He said, I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. That's the proof you've wanted all along. And that's the proof that I've been telling you about. So when those ladies show up and they go to the tomb and the stone is rolled away and the, the tomb is empty and the angels are like, he's risen. That, that is the proof that he gave to them. This is what I've been telling you all along about what needed to happen. This is the miracle that you want. Remember, you kept saying, show us a miracle, show us a miracle. This is it. And so because of that, when Jesus dies for the crime of blasphemy, it is the resurrected Savior that validates his claim. When he says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the chosen one, the anointed one, the king who is to come and save. And remember, I'm not saving people the way that you want to. I'm not saving people like like Pharaoh or Caesar. I'm not I'm not a political ruler here. I'm here to give my life for you, to shed my blood, to offer forgiveness for your sins. That's what I'm going to do. And so because this vindicates him of his crime, Jesus says, now I need to go and I need to show my disciples and prove to them what I said is true. That I had to die and be risen again. And so then we have this timeline of this, the events of of what happens after the resurrection, and so the women show up and the tomb's empty and they're talking to the angels and the angels are like, he's not here. And so 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 they go running off to tell the disciples. And in Luke 24, the disciples don't believe them. So Peter and John go running over to the tomb. They have to see for themselves. And in John, chapter 20, verse 18, Jesus shows himself to Mary Magdalene and he thinks it's the gardener. And he's like, do you know where they've put Jesus? I'm trying to figure it out, and I don't know where he is. Would you please tell me, Gardner? And then Jesus calls her name. And when he hears the voice, and he hears Jesus call, he realizes that it's, that it's him. And he grabs onto him. And he's like, Jesus. And Jesus is like, don't hold on to me. You got a job to do. You need to go. And she runs off, and what does she proclaim? I have seen The Lord. And then in Matthew 28, Jesus shows himself to to the rest of the women there. And when he when he shows up, they fall down and it says they came to him, clasped at his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus later goes and and Peter and John make it to the tomb and and, and John gets there first and he runs to the entrance of the tomb and and he just stops. And then Peter comes storming in and he just flies right in and he's he's looking around. And and Jesus would show himself to Peter later. But Peter's just looking around and then John comes in. And John just looks and and he sees the linen cloths, but he doesn't see the body of Jesus. And what does it say there? He saw and believed. And so then Jesus has this conversation with these two men on the road to Emmaus. And they're talking about all of the, the news that happened with Jesus. And so in Luke 24, when they're talking, Jesus says, what, what things he asked? They say about Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of the angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. They're like, man, we're hearing all this stuff and and we really were hoping Jesus was the Messiah. And they're they're walking with him and they don't know it's Jesus. We're really hoping he was the guy he he said about coming back to life. And we're we're starting to hear this, but we're not sure. And and we're just don't know what's going on. And so Jesus continues to walk and he's like, guys, are are you that slow to believe? Are you that slow to remember all of the things that have been spoken about me? And finally, towards the end of the day, when Jesus is talking, it finally clicks and they realize it is Jesus He is alive. And so what do they do? They run back seven miles back to Jerusalem, seven miles. They go running and they find the disciples and they proclaim it is true. The Lord has risen. And as as Jesus, as the disciples are there, they're talking. Jesus appears to them. Luke 24, 36 While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they had saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is myself. Touch and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you do. See, I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and excitement, he asked Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. And Jesus shows up and they're like, it's a ghost. And Jesus is like, whoa, calm down. It's me. It's me, guys. Look, touch me. Feel me. Hold me. Hug me. I'm alive. Give me something to eat. Ghosts don't eat food. Look, I'll show you And so he eats. And so then as they're talking, Thomas wasn't there. And they find Thomas and they're like, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. He's risen. And we all know Thomas's story, right? As they're talking to Thomas, he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nail marks were and put my hands into his side, I won't believe Thomas is like, no, not until I can do it myself. Well, I believe what you have just told me. And so what does Jesus do? A week later, he appears. And they were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Go ahead, Thomas. Do it. Touch. Go ahead. This is what you wanted. This is the proof that you wanted. Go ahead, Thomas. Do it. And so Thomas does. What does he say? My Lord and my God. And Jesus would continue to go, and he would appear to the disciples. And it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen six that he would appear to 500 of them at one time. And then in Acts chapter 1, after 40 days of appearing to his disciples, he would leave this world, and he would ascend into heaven. So Jesus kept saying, look, you want a miracle, here's the miracle. You want proof of who I am, here is that Proof. And why does the resurrection matter? Well, what does 1 Corinthians 15 tell us? But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. We have testified about God that he, had raised, that he has cri- raised Christ from the dead. But he, did not, but he did not raise him. In fact, the dead are not raised. For if, he, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ and we are all pitted more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See our, our faith hinges on this event. Our faith hinges on this point that if Christ was dead and still buried in the ground, our preaching and our faith is useless. It's it's empty, it's vain, it has no purpose. If Christ was still in the ground, what does that make us? It makes us a bunch of liars, and everything that we do is pointless. Everything that we do as Christians and every obedient command that we try to follow has absolutely no value, and all you're doing is convincing yourself that something is better on the other side. So if that's the case, then stop following the moral authority of the commands of Christ. Stop coming to church. Stop praying to a God that doesn't exist. Stop giving your tithe money. Stop serving. Stop going around and telling people about who Jesus is. Because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, none of that has any value and you are wasting your life. But we know that's not true. And that's the point of this resurrection. Because it is that resurrection that proves everything that Jesus has said. It proves that Jesus died and rose again. And it proves that he is the Messiah, the one who was to come. So when they needed a miracle. God said, here it is. And let me just go to one other story about where Jesus is constantly having to prove himself. In the, uh, the book of Matthew, starting in uh, verse 1 here of chapter 9, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Know their thoughts, Jesus said. Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God who had given such authority to men. So these people bring Jesus a paralytic and not like Jesus, we want you to heal him. Lord, we want this man to walk. And isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't heal him first, but what does Jesus do? He says, I forgive you of your sins. Well, isn't, isn't the reason they're there is so this man can be physically healed. Well, when Jesus says this, they're like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? You have no right to forgive sins. That only belongs to God alone. You don't have a right, Jesus, to forgive the sins of this man. How dare you? And Jesus is like, oh, I'm I'm sorry. You need to see my authority. Get up and walk. Walk. Because, see, in that culture, sin was often attached to one circumstance. That what they believed is that man couldn't walk because he was steeped in sin. That he was being punished for what he had done wrong. So the fact that Jesus forgives this man's sins and then tells him to get up and walk, says not only do I have the power to physically heal this man, but you know what? I have the power to forgive his actual sins. And so, again, all of this means about the resurrection that Jesus is who he said he is. I'm God. I'm the great I am. I am the Alpha, the Omega. I'm the creator of this world and I am the sustainer of this world. I have the power and the authority to forgive sins. I have the power to bring people back from the dead and to resurrect them to life. And because of that, we should have confidence. We should have confidence in the word of God. We should have confidence in the scriptures and we should have confidence that you and I can live a life that is filled with peace and joy. That your life has purpose, that your life has meaning, that your life has value. And we know it has value because Christ came to die for you. And that you are loved and that you are forgiven and that there is an eternity that awaits you in Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean for our faith? Do I, do I continue to pray and do I sing songs to Jesus? Absolutely you do, because God hears our cries and God hears our prayers. Should I be reading God's word? Absolutely. You should be reading God's word, because if this is true and God had said, this is your guidebook for life and you want to know about who I am and you want to know about my love and how I will help you through life. You will find it here in the scriptures. So you better believe you should be reading this. What about this? Do I keep coming here every Sunday? Do I, do, I, do I join a small group? Do I show up on family night? Do I, Do I make visits when people go to a hospital? Absolutely, because your fellowship is extremely important to me because we share the same Heavenly Father and we will share eternity together. And I need you and you need me because we both need Christ. So... When we did Leviticus and you kept talking about being holy, Adam, you're saying that I really should think about being holy and get rid of my sins. Yes, because in that holiness, God had said it's going to be beneficial for you if you live the way that I'm calling to live. And more importantly, the way that you live in that holiness is a sign to the unbelieving world of who I am. So, Adam, you're telling me that I should keep going out and telling people about Jesus? Yes, you should. Because you know why? Eternal life hangs in the balance. Life and death hangs in the balance of what people believe about Jesus Christ. And if we are not out there proclaiming the glories and the love of Jesus Christ, then there are people that are destined for hell and the condemnation for their sins. And so God has put us here and said, you as the church, this is your job. So when Jesus went to the cross and he rose again, that death and that resurrection confirmed everything that he said to be true. And because that was true, because it, 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 it vindicated and exonerated Jesus of his guilt. It just didn't validate his claim of who he was God. But it also has validated my faith in yours. That everything that you and I believe about these scriptures is true. And this is how Christ has called us to live. And what is he calling us? To be holy And to go into this world proclaiming his glories until he calls us home. Let's pray. Father, again, this this was the miracle that proved it all. This is the miracle that you had set up before you died. It's the miracle that you knew was going to happen. And as much as your disciples just didn't get it, Lord, you proved it to them. And Lord, not only you proved it to them, but Lord, you proved it to us that, Lord, we can have confidence in you. That, Lord, your, your death and your resurrection is, is a glorious peace to embrace. And I just pray that we now go forward with that, with that mindset, Lord, that we have proclaimed freedom from our sins, that you have forgiven us. And, and Lord, there is nothing that we need to fear. But, Lord, you have called us to go into this world and love the world the way that you have loved us. Let us share that testimony. Let us share that witness. And we thank you, God, that this miracle has occurred and that we have be given eternal life. Amen.